last, yesterday, earlier, there was a panel, and I was on it, on, uh, what was the day before, on inerrancy, the inerrancy of the Bible. And uh, Simon Gathercole was sitting beside me. He's a professor at the University of Cambridge in England. And over here was Peter Wilfs, Williams, the uh, warden at Tyndale House in Cambridge. And then there's Mark Dever leading it. And Al Moeller, president of Southern Seminary here. And, and uh, who is over here? Ligon Duncan? I'm not sure. Anyway, why is the Bible true? Is it absolutely true? And just as it was coming to an end, um, Mark Dever turns to me and he says, Okay, John, just tell these folks, these 8,000 folks, uh, no preparation, don't know what questions are coming. Why do you believe the Bible is inerrant? Why do you believe the Bible is true? Just give us a short answer to why you believe the Bible is, is true, which, which I was very happy to do. Here's, here's what came out of my mouth. I had not given any thought to this at all. Well, in general, I, I had. I, I knew it was a panel on inerrancy, and, and uh, we we're supposed to think about it. But what I was going to say, I hadn't thought, and I said, that kind of question always requires a layered answer. There's a lot of levels at which one believes things. So here's the first reason. My mama told me it was true. That's what I said. And they all laughed, and Mark didn't laugh, and he said, that's an important answer. And I said, I know it's important. It's it's the most fundamental one. Well, maybe second most fundamental. I'll get to the most fundamental one. Because it's a biblical answer. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, remember from whom, and he means Lois and Eunice, remember from whom you've learned these things. That's why you should keep on believing them. If other arguments start to get in the way, at least remember that. Remember what she was like. In fact, shoot, I was going to do this, but I forgot. I brought along a picture of my mom, and I was going to say, I wonder if we could just stick it up there. But Maybe another time. So I was going to let you see what she looked like when I was young. Um, that was the first answer I gave, and it's a biblical answer, and it's true. We, let's just be honest. We are who we are because of where we came from. we got all kinds of other things that happened to us along the way, which we just heard from Mary, but we are profoundly stamped for good and ill by our backgrounds and by our parents. And I, I had a mom who taught me, modeled for me that the Bible was true. I'll mention a few of the other layers that I, I gave. The, most, the, the one at the bottom is God enables you to see. That's why you ultimately believe the Bible. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the, of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we're blind, and then verse 6, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's how you see him when you, when you open the Bible. One day it's boring, it's meaningless, it's mythological, it's useless, and the next day... There's glory on every page because the one that it's about is authenticating himself to us. That's why m most of you believe the Bible because there was a point where as you were reading, you couldn't not believe him. He pressed himself in on you as a savior and a Lord. And out from that grew confidence in what he said. And out from that grew confidence in what he said about what others said in the book. And so you began to be a Bible woman. That's the way it happens. It's not very, it's not very theological and very intellectual and very academic for, for most people. Very rarely does anyone come to believe the Bible through academic arguments. We come through experiential ways. Another, another reason I gave was that the Apostle Paul has won my confidence like Jesus has. So if, if something happened, say, 10 years ago, and you weren't there, and you're trying to find out, did it really happen? It's a little skewed in our day because you got videos and cameras and recorders, and so you can ask for that kind of evidence. Well, just put yourself back two centuries before any of that, or 20 centuries, and, and you need to verify whether something happened. Like your life hangs on it. It does. And you don't have any immediate evidence. 
What have you got? There's only one thing you've got, testimony. That's all you've got is testimony. Somebody says they saw it. They write you a note. I saw it. I was there. Now, now how do you decide? Very simple. Are they credible? So, you come to the testimony. You come to the, the witnesses. And you've got to decide. I mean, your life hangs on it. <laughs> there is no fence sitting in life on this issue. You, you go against and die or you go for and live. There's no, there's no middle ground. You have to decide, am I going to follow the witnesses? Now, one of the main witnesses in the New Testament is Paul. He wrote 13 of the 29, 27 letters. Now, I've read Paul's letters hundreds of times. I know my friend Paul, and I trust him. Along comes a liberal theologian when I'm in Germany. And he cast doubt here and there. And I, and I say, okay, I'm studying you, fella. What kind of person are you? How smart are you? How loving are you? How kind are you? How coherent are you? And then I go to Paul and I say, I know you. And I put the two and I say, I'm going with Paul. <laughs> I mean, it really does come down to, this is a human being. He's writing what he says he saw. You have to say, this is an idiot. Or, I'm going there with you. You know, you've heard the argument for Jesus, liar, lunatic, or Lord. I think that's a really good argument. He's a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Works the same with Paul, only you don't say Lord. You say liar, lunatic, or faithful witness. It does work. I mean, you just have to ask yourself. Go home and read from Romans through uh, 2 Timothy, Titus, and, and ask, can I call this man foolish? I mean, or does his witness certify for me? This man's not crazy. This man's a reliable witness. Now, I, I didn't take nearly this long. I only had five minutes last, yesterday when I was talking about this. But those are some of the, the layers. I did mention one other. Um, when I finished my answer, I said, that's a few layers. I'd give him three or four. I said, there are others. And they all laughed. He said, give me one more. And I said... How do you stay married? How do you keep your hands off pornography? How do you tell the truth when it's going to be costly? How do you kill your own selfishness? In other words, wh where in life do you get power to kill sin and to put to death this inveterate, selfish human being that we all are? And there's only one power. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there, there's an ongoing witness in life as you walk with this book through your, your troubled life and you realize, this, I'm, I'm not going anywhere but here to fight against my selfishness and, and my lust and my pride and self-pity and so on. So I'm coming off of a very exciting conference in Louisville and coming to a very exciting conference here, and I'm really honored to be with you. I, I, about, about a third of those guys were pastors. None of you is pastor, probably. We don't think that should be. Talking to Kay today, she doesn't think that's a good idea. Does that mean that that group is more influential than this group? That's a very tricky question. Influence and public authority aren't the same, are they? I have argued in public that probably in the history of the world, mothers are the most influential people on the planet. I mean, I just, that just seems pretty, I think that's probably true. I, I can't measure it. I know you're not all married and don't all have kids. And there are other ways. In other words, you can't quantify influence in manhood and womanhood or in vocational roles. You just can't. Just know that as a human being, married, single, mom, grandmama, or whatever, your influence is immeasurable if you're saturated with this book. Okay? So I'm not here like, oh, shoot. That was influential. This is not. That's not the way my mind is working at all. 
I have a real high sense of what I want to happen tonight, okay, in your heart and your mind for the sake of the world. Families, neighborhoods, institutions, job places, husbands, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters, society, nations out of this room, okay? So don't underestimate what we're about here. Nothing is more crucial for a woman's being who God made you to be and knowing how to make your life count than being saturated with the Bible. Nothing. Everything was made by God and everything is therefore sustained by God and therefore determined and defined by God, including you. And therefore, you cannot know who you are. You can't know who you are individually. You can't know what womanhood is unless you're saturated with his word telling you. Because there are a thousand people interpreting womanhood for you today. On every channel and on every billboard and in every internet site, a message is coming to you about the nature of your gender and your own individual being. You will make a decision about that. You will be defined. And the only question is by what? And I'm, I'm going to do my best to persuade you, live here. Because you'll be what God made you to be. And it will be glorious if you live here. And only you can discover the individuality of that. Now, my, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working from general to specific in this message. That was all the introduction. Um, and they didn't tell me when to quit, but I'll try to keep it. She said about an hour. So we'll... we'll uh, we're going to move from truth to Bible, the question of truth. I want you to be women who really, really prize external, objective truth. Mary just said, I wrote it down, my spirit resonated with the Baptist, but I wanted to know the truth. That's a good sentence, whether he's a Baptist or not. Oh, for more women and men who speak that way. I just wanted to know what's true. An assumption behind that is there is such a thing. You can't assume that today with the people you're talking to at work. But I want to persuade you it's a good idea to assume that. Michael Novak, writing in First Things, says, There is, they say, no such thing as truth. They even teach it to the little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. Those who speak this way prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. Now, why did he say those two things? In other words, if you, if you have the mindset of relativism, postmodernism, in which you say, there's no such thing as absolute truth. I have a truth. You have a truth. Truth is infinitely malleable, and everybody should just own his own authentic truth to try to conform to external truth. is bondage. He says, people that talk that way are preparing jail. Secondly, he said, people that talk that way are acting like tyrants. Why? Now, I'll give you, he didn't say why, but I think I know why, and you probably could figure it out if you just thought a few minutes about it. I think he's saying, with regard to jail, something like this. If you raise generations of young people who don't believe there is external, objective truth, to which they must conform. And their psyche, their ego, is the center of the world, determining the truth for what they will believe and do. 
a lot of them are going to live like that and go to jail because if you don't put them in jail, they will rob from you, take your purse if you leave it here, or kill you or rape you. That's what they'll do because the truth for them is that satisfaction. And the jails are full of people that have not been brought to the point where they will submit to reality outside of them. They become reality and define reality and do reality from inside out, not any kind of bondage from law or God or mom. What about do the work of tyrants? Why why do you say that? That, the, that you, you talk relativism and no truth and everybody's got their own truth, do the work of tyrants or prepare the world for tyrants. And here's the reason. Just think about this historically. If enough people begin to live out their autonomy with no submission to truth and reality outside themselves, eventually you will have mobs. You will have anarchy each one doing what's right in his own eyes. And what happens in anarchy? Mob rule. Nobody can tell who's going to do what in the city anymore. You can't tell whether they're going to drive on one side of the road or the other, whether your house is going to be in flames before they get up, whether you're going to have the purse ripped off of you as you walk down the street. There's no no control anymore. Everything's out of control. And what, what do societies at that point want more than anything? They don't want freedom more than anything. Freedom gets you killed in this society. They want a ruler who will kill those people or throw them in jail. Just give us order. Just give us order. We will have order at any cost because we can't live without it. That's true. That's true. That's why America won't survive if we don't have people who are operating submissively towards reality and truth outside themselves. So just a flavor of how important the sheer question of truth is. We haven't gotten to the Bible yet. Just is there, is there an external reality to which you must submit because it's absolute. Now, God is absolute. He was there before anything was there. He brought into being what is. Therefore, what is totally depends on him and must decide Will we be what he defines us to be, or will we be in rebellion the rest of our lives, which will bring only heartache and chaos to us? That's really, really big. Now, here's the way I'm going to approach this. I'm going to take a little poem here from Rudyard Kipling and uh, discern three questions in it. Here here goes the little poem. You might have used these with your kids if you've got kids. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. I send them over land and sea. I send them east and west. But after they have worked for me, I give them all a rest. Six serving men. What, why, when, how, where, who. Sounds like inductive Bible study. That's Rudyard Kipling. When I finished teaching six years at Bethel in 1980 and became a pastor here, my Greek students gave me a T-shirt with uh, two lines on the back. And the lines were, asking questions is the key to understanding. That was their summary of my legacy. And I was very happy with that. I didn't always try to tell them what they should believe. I wanted them to learn how to ask the right questions and find for themselves the right answers. And so I'm going to build the rest of this message around three of those serving men, namely why, what, and how. If If you're at Bethlehem and you listen carefully over time, you'll realize that's all I do in preaching. I ask questions. The why one is always the most important for me, but then the how one is practical. And the what, you don't even know what you're talking about unless you say what. So what, why, and how are pretty much in every sermon. I want to know what we're talking about. 
I want to know, why, why do you care? And why should anybody out there care? And then, how do you do anything with this? Make a difference in your life. Those are just massive questions that you should ask about just about everything you deal with. So here we go. Uh, I'll give you the summary, I mean the outline. Why should we care about a passion for truth? You and your, the next generation over, over which most of you have significant influence. Number two, what is the sum of truth? Why should you care about it, passionate about it? What is it? What, what is truth? What is the sum of, of truth? And then finally, how can we come to know it? Very simple. First question, why should you care about passing along to the next generation and becoming more fully yourself a woman who is passionate for the truth we've been talking about? Just truth, truth. So here's, here's my answer. If you are indifferent to truth, Jesus won't have anything to do with you. Won't, he, won't, he won't come alongside you because he doesn't like people like that. I'm going to give you a story to show you that. This is serious, right? That's, that's pretty strong. Matthew chapter 21, you can look at it or I'll, I'll read it. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. One of my favorite stories. It's profoundly defining for me as a person and a pastor. And I think it should be for you as a person as well. When he entered the temple, the chief priests, this is Matthew 21, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Okay, now is he going to answer that question? I, I think he would. Will he? He won't. Why not? Let's find out why not. By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Verse 24, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This is amazing. I'm going to give you a chance to show me how you feel and think about truth before I share truth with you. That text about don't throw your pearls before swine, it's like a swine test. That's what it feels like to me. Verse 25, the baptism of John, Jesus says, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Okay, they've heard the question. They huddle up. They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why didn't you believe on him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold John to be a prophet. So they're afraid of some mob violence here or some shame. So they said to Jesus, they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you about what authority I give these things. I don't talk to people like that. Like what? Like what? What's wrong here? Where is truth? Okay, he just asked us, baptism of John, what do we think about it? Heavenly, godly, good thing, bad thing, just human. If we say, this is total expediency here, total expediency, not one rip or shred of care about the truth, just skin and ego. Okay, if we say from heaven, He's going to shame us. He's going to say, why don't you guys believe what I mean? And we won't know what to say. We'll look like fools. I don't like to look like a fool. Being not looking, how do I say this? Not looking like a fool is more important than truth. It is for a lot of people. And then the other one was, well, how about if we say it's from man? Yeah, but the crowd thinks he's a prophet. If we say it's from man, they're going to, good night, they could stone us, or they're going to laugh at us, or they're going to drive us out, or they're going to shout us down, and we'll look absolutely ridiculous. So what are we going to say? Well, just, just tell him we don't know. But we know. We don't think it is heavenly. Well, don't say that. 
Just tell them we don't know. That works. That works. What do you call this in America? Pragmatism. Sheer, truthless pragmatism. That's everywhere in America. And Jesus won't deal with them. This is why I'm starting with truth. You've got to be women who care. Or he just won't deal with you. If, if, if he comes to you ready to, ready to offer himself in truth to you, and you, you posture yourself for ego or for safety and don't care about truth, he'll say, oh, that's the way you want to be. I can't, I, can't, I can't negotiate that with you. I'm a man of truth. I give truth where it's valued. If you don't have any value for truth, if you value your skin and your ego more than you value my, my contribution to your truth, then okay. That's really big. So my answer to my first serving man, why? Why should you care? Why should you care to be a woman of truth? Well, to, to, to use that sentence Mary used to say, my heart was going with the Baptist, but I, I need to know the truth. I need to know what's real. It's out there. If it's hard, I'm going to embrace it. If it's easy, I'm going to embrace it. If it beats me up, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to be a woman of the truth. Jesus really gets close to people like that. He just, he'll go a long way with sinners like that. Question number two. What? That was why. Why should you care? about being a woman of the truth. And now the question is, what is it? What's the sum of truth? I mean, I've got a text with each of those. So you got that? The text for that answer was Matthew 21, 23 to 27. All right? Because what I count, what I say here doesn't really matter. What God says really matters. And so if I don't have a text under these, then you should say, hmm, wonder why there wasn't any text under that one. Must be an opinion. So number two, what's the sum of the truth? What do, what, do you, what do you even mean when you say truth? Now, here's my main text here. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Now, two halves to that psalm. That's the way the psalms are, right? They're parallel, lots of times. Symmetry like this. In the first half, the sum of your word is truth. It sounds collective. Like, if you want to know what is truth, this is truth. This is truth. This, this whole thing right here. And the next line is, and every one of your righteous rules, your statutes, are Enduring forever, because it's true too. So there's a summation of truth, your word, and there's an individualization, every one of them is truth. So what, what is truth? Truth is God's mind thought, word, about anything you're wondering about the truth of it. In other words, you can't have a thing called truth if you don't have a thing called real. Truth is a statement that corresponds to the real. If you don't have real, this is nothing out here. This is nothing. Well, then words are clearly constructs of your own being, which is where most of our academics in American universities are. If you lose the real out there, the ultimate real, the very concept of truth becomes inward, not there. Whereas I think I'm always dealing with God and my concept of truth then is, is it what he thinks? About my marriage? Is it what he thinks about this text? Like, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to not just say anything I feel like saying when I read words. I want to know are they what God meant? So you got to have a reel out there to measure your own 
whirling brain about. And he's really out there, and he's really spoken, and therefore we have truth. The sum of your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. So God is ultimate reality, and truth is what conforms to him. And the place that this reality and its representation in truth become most profoundly one is Jesus himself. In the beginning was the word, the the revelation, the, the real going public, the real communicating. It, it, it eventually takes form of propositions in a book, but most fundamentally, the real became us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. And so the, the ultimate truth revelation is Jesus himself. And then what Jesus does becomes the heart of truth, and what he says becomes the heart of of truth. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, Jesus said, John 18, 37. My testimony is true, for I know where I come from, John 8, 14. My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood, John 7, 18. So he was the truth, he was the word, and he came to speak the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we believe that when you go to this book, all of it, summarily and individually, is true. But it has a center. It has a a hero. And he is the word, and all these words are meant to make him plain. All these words are meant to highlight him. This is a book about Jesus from beginning to end as it leads to him and flows from him. Jesus himself, if you, if you say, what was Jesus' view of the law? This is interesting. We're on this panel yesterday, Sami Gathercole here, the, he- the most heavyweight scholar there, and uh, believing in inerrancy, teaching at Cambridge University in England, this is unheard of unheard of. Revival has come that, that a, a teacher at Cambridge University would believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. And he said, my main reason is because historically, I cannot deny that was Jesus' view of his Bible. I can argue in any scholarly setting, any university in the world, that that is a fact that Jesus viewed his Bible, namely the Old Testament, that way. Heaven and earth may pass away. Not a jot, not a tittle, not a stroke, not a cross of a T or a dot of an I will fall from the law until all is accomplished. That's Jesus talking. And so he says, okay, if I'm going to be submissive to Jesus as Lord of my life, and historically Jesus had that view of the Bible, and then he added this. And before Jesus left and went back to heaven, he chooses these apostles and he says, especially in the Gospel of John, I will send the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth so that the first half of your Bible I'm endorsing and the second half of your Bible I'm, I'm inspiring. And that's, that's how he works. That you start at the center with Jesus and you work your way out to Jesus powerful view of the Old Testament and Jesus' preparation to make the New Testament authoritative. And then you got the apostles saying, we speak in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by wisdom from above, taught by the Spirit of God. This is remarkably consistent testimony. So my answer to the second question of what? First, why? Why should you care about truth? 
Because if you're the kind of person who's, who's expediently and pragmatically manipulating your language to avoid problems and never dealing with truth, Jesus won't come and deal seriously with you. That's a big reason. And, and the second question of what is what is truth? The sum of your word is truth. You're, I am the truth, and, and I have endorsed the first half of this Bible, and I have endorsed the second half of this Bible. This Bible is the faithful testimony to me who is the ultimate truth, and all that I did in dying for you and rising again. That's question number, number two. I'm trying to think whether I should go to number three or say one more, one more thing about number two. Uh, I'm trying to find out number, where number three starts, and I can't even find it. Um, we have an affirmation of faith here, um, the elder affirmation of faith, and um, it goes like this. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the infallible word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. We believe that God's intentions revealed in the Bible are the supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. In matters not addressed by the Bible, what is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Every elder at Bethlehem signs that. In other words, we know that all the questions we have to answer in 21st century America just aren't they aren't in the book. You know, movies weren't invented, and internet wasn't invented, and abortion isn't mentioned per se, and Lots and lots of things. The Bible is not worthless on those things because it's got hundreds of trajectories and principles and transformative views of your life and heart and society and world that you can discern if you're saturated with this book all kinds of moral issues your kids are going to raise for you, raise for us anyway. I hadn't thought about that, you know. Talking about some of those things, but I won't go into that. So I'm going to stop. That's end of number two. The the why should we care about truth and the what is it? And now finally, how how can you, with integrity and authenticity, come to know this is so? That this this is it. Know that Christ is who he said he was, and know that this book is a reliable guide to reality. How can you know? Um, believing things without reason doesn't honor the worth of what you're believing. If somebody... If you say, I believe in God, and somebody says, why? And you say, no reason, I just do. God's not honored by that answer. Might as well be, you know, green cheese. I believe in green cheese. Why? No reason, just do. So God, cheese. The only way you can honor the person you are believing or think exists is to have a reason. And the reason will be one that gives him some credit or credibility or trustworthiness. So if you're walking down the street and a guy, total stranger, walks up to you, woman, whatever, and has a, a sack of $10,000 in cash, gives it to you and says, would you deposit this for me? Here's my, here's my account number. Here's my PIN number. And uh, I've already signed the, the thing. Just just." To, deposit it for me, and starts to walk away. And you say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't even know you. Why are you trusting me with this $10,000? And he says, no reason, 
I just picked you out. There's no reason whatsoever. You are not honored by that. Like, you just, you're crazy. That's all you would think. You're crazy. I'm not honored by this. You're stupid. <laughs> However, re rewind the film. You do it again. He comes up to you, and he says, would you deposit this for me? And uh, written it out, cash. Uh, here's a pin number. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why are you trusting me with this? He says, well, you don't know me, but we work in the same place. We have for a year. And I've watched you. I've watched you for a year. I trust you. How do you feel? Pretty good. And you should. You, there's a reason. The reason imparts honor to you. I've watched you. You're faithful. You keep your word. You're honest. I know you. I've watched you. And that's the way it is with God. If you say, uh, here, take my life, he says, why would you trust me? And you say, I don't know. No reason. He's not honored by that. Reasons really, really matter. So how do you help a nine-year-old or yourself come to a credible belief that this is so, that this is true? That's huge. When I was in seminary, I take courses on apologetics, lots of reasons why you believe the Bible, answer all the objections against God in the Bible. And I had a teacher, so wise, very bright and knew all those arguments, would help us read the right books on those arguments. But every year, he had a special class and he invited all kinds of college students to come who were thinking about going to Fuller Seminary at the time. And it was called A Rational Faith for Non-Historians. Meaning, and he told us why he did this. He said, I do this because I know that 90 plus percent of the people who come to faith in Christ and his book do not come through rational historical argumentation. I mean, just be honest. If I required that you stand here right now and just talk for five minutes about historical evidences for the infallibility of the Bible, most of you would be at a loss, even though lots of you learned those once upon a time, probably. But they go out of your head. They go out of my head, and I'm supposed to be an expert in these things. So any, if I have to give a lecture on that, I have to go read the books again. Well, what kind of confidence is that? Got to go read the books again. Do you believe in God? Well, let me go read the books again. <laughs> you believe the Bible? Well, I, I'll have to go read the books that I read in seminary. Real life. I mean, if we cannot have a warranted confidence another way, we won't have one. That way just won't cut it. Maybe 2% of the human beings in the world will be able to maintain their faith by having ready at hand, with every demonic temptation, some nice historical reasons. So he gave a lecture. It was very, very profound to me. And he pointed me to Jonathan Edwards, the most important dead theologian in my life outside the Bible. And I'm going to read you a paragraph that was enormously important in helping me know whether I could be a pastor or not. Because while I was teaching in school, I felt like I could always do the academic thing, give the arguments, and therefore maintain some credibility for the faith. And I knew that if I were to stand in this pulpit week in and week out with real, ordinary human beings, that was not the way it could be done. So how do you preach on the Gospel of John without having an apologetics lesson every Sunday? Which I don't. So here's what Edwards wrote. Unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the Gospel by the internal evidences of it, by a sight of its glory, it is impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all. 
they may, without this, see a great deal of probability of it. It may be reasonable for them to give such credit to what learned and histor- learned men and historians tell them. But to have a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell all confidently and fearlessly to run the venture of the loss of all things and of enduring the most exquisite and long-continued torments and to trample the world underfoot and count all things as dung for Christ, the evidence they have from history cannot be sufficient. That's true. True. I think it's true for every scholar as well as ordinary person. But you know what you get from studying history? Probabilities, right? Somebody can always come along with your six arguments for the resurrection from the dead, your six reasons why the tomb was empty, and say, but what about this? Have you thought of this? But I'm not so sure that you, can you have? Now, probability is great. We live a lot of our lives by probability. Okay, you walk across the street assuming cars going to stop at the red light. Um, but when your life hangs on the truth of this book and somebody's got a pistol to your head, you need more than probability. You need something really profound inside that has persuaded you. That's valid. Valid. Rationally responsible. So that's what Edward said. And I said, yeah, you do. And at 24 years old, I wasn't quite sure what it was, how to say it, how to say it. I felt it. I felt like, I believe. I'm, my mama told me so. <laughs> she was a good woman. There are two texts that I'll give you for this um, argument of Edwards, namely that There is a, how does he put it? Unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, by a sight of its glory, it is impossible for the illiterate and unacquainted to have conviction. I mean, just picture yourself as a missionary in Papua New Guinea, okay? You penetrate a tribe, you spend a year or two with them, you begin to tell the whole story of the Bible. They are riveted with interest. You get to the cross, and they believe. How did that? They don't know anything about historical historiography. They don't know anything about rational argumentation for the inerrancy of the Bible or for the resurrection. They just have heard a story faithfully told from an authoritative book, and they surrender to it. Is that rationally responsible? And it is, but why is it? That's, that's what we need an answer for. And I'll give you two passages of Scripture of how that works, and then we'll be done. Yeah, sum up. Matthew 16, 16 to 17. Simon Peter replied, and so Jesus, Jesus comes and, and, and says, who do men say that I am? And some say John the Baptist and some say Jeremiah. And, but who do you say that I am? So Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he's expressing a truth conviction about the man standing in front of him that looks like every other man, you're the son of God. Here's Jesus' answer, verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood. Now, that just means ordinary human existence, rational, emotional human existence, minus God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I don't think that meant God the Father whispered in his ear. He's the, he's the son of God. And didn't whisper it in anybody else's ear. Just This is separate, private revelation of whispering. I don't think so. What he did was open the eyes of his heart 
so that all the evidences that were really standing there in front of him, and the way he taught, and the way he acted, the way he related to his father, shone with self-evidencing glory. You are the Son of God. There was no, there was no whispering. I see it. I'm not, I'm not trusting a voice. I'm trusting you. You're the Son of God, and I see it. I know it because I see it. Judas didn't. That's one text. Here's a more important one. This is right in the top ten of my texts in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Everything is here to explain why Edward said what he said, why you don't have to be an academic historian to have a solid, rock, solid, rationally credible conviction that Jesus is who he said he is, and this is his book. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from going to read a phrase here, and then it's going to be repeated in verse 6, two verses later, a little differently. It is enormously important. The God of this age is keeping you blind, keeping you uncertain, making you say, I don't know, I don't know, I can't tell, I'm not sure, I don't should commit my life on this, I don't know, I can't. There's a blindness there. To what? Rational, historical, long chains of reasoning? Listen, to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, what does that mean? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's what Satan is keeping unbelievers from seeing. When it says the light of the gospel of the glory, it means tell me the story. Tell me the story of the gospel. That there's God and there's wrath and holiness and I'm lost and I'm sinful. I know that. And God sends his son into the world in the climax of a history of Israel and his son is, lives a perfect life of righteousness which I could never live and he never sins so he could be a perfectly pure, blemishless sacrifice. He willingly goes to the cross as a substitute for me and he triumphs over the death and rises and vindicates the adequacy of his substitute so that all who come and believe in him will have all their sins forgiven and righteousness counted as theirs and be eternally safe and be adopted into the family of God. That's a story. And there's a glory in it. A self authenticating divine glory in it that if God does verse 6 you will see and you'll die for it and there'll be reason for it and the reason isn't in you it's in the reality out there and God's opening your eyes to see it so here's verse 6 God so all we read in verse 4 was Satan keeps you from seeing that well how do you get how do you see it how do you get over the horrific satanic blindness. Verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? talking about God's initial creation in the beginning of the creation. The God who said that has shown in our hearts. That's where you see. Paul prayed for the eyes of our hearts. Ephesians 1.17. The eyes of our hearts, not the eyes of our head only, but the eyes of our hearts. The God who said, let light shine of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, which is virtually the same as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those are those verse 4 and 6 are parallel statements. So here's how, here's how you come to know. This is the how, the third serving man. Why should you give a hoot? 
about truth, Jesus won't, just won't come seriously to people who are playing games with truth. And what is it? It's him and his book, the sum of his word is truth. How can I know? Because I'm, I'm kind of go back to school and go to seminary. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness. As you're reading the story, as you're meditating on the real revealed person, causes the eyes of your heart to be open to see what is really there. It's not hocus pocus. The fact that an unbeliever will come up to you and say, I don't see it, should not any more than a blind man coming up to you and say, I don't believe in the sun. I think warmth is just on your skin. I think it comes out of the skin. And you won't be affected by that argument. You got eyes. And when you see the self-authenticating glory of the gospel, the Christ of the gospel. How's it called? The light of the gospel of the glory. Gospel of the glory. There'll come a day, and I don't know if you're all there yet or not, but there'll come a day, Lord willing, where that story and that Christ and how he's unfolded in the letters and unfolded in the gospel, you'll read it enough, and one day, eyes will go open and glory, self-evidencing, real divine glory will say, you can't disbelieve this anymore. I actually said on that panel, I don't know if they knew what I meant, but I said to them, after I said the bottom foundational reason for believing is that God enabled me to, he just showed me, I said, I don't think I could not believe in this book if I tried. That's dangerous, but it's, I think it's true. I mean, this is my theology coming out. I believe I have been taken from eternity by God. I believe I have been made his own by election. I believe he broke into my life with sovereign grace, opened my eyes, and has promised those whom I called, I will keep. And if I tried right now, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. It, I, I would just feel like that's, that's trying to fly. Kind of ironic because... Unbelievers feel like believing it is trying to fly. I'm going to flap my wings and fly. You won't. Okay, I'm done. Let me sum it up one more time. Then maybe you can remember these three serving men. Why, what, how, and the text to go with them. Why should you care about being women who say with Mary, I just want to know what's true, what's real, what's outside me. If it's true, I'm bowing. Matthew 21, 23. Jesus won't, won't deal with people who play around with truth. Um, what? The sum of your word is true. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is true. I am the way, the truth. And I have endorsed the Old Testament in Matthew 5. And I have prepared for the New Testament under my inspiration in John 16. How can you know that? I'm, why, why am I just not jabbering away? Because my mama told me to. Because as you're reading the story, the gospel, God Almighty, just like he said, let there be light at the beginning of the world, comes to you. This is called the new birth called conversion. He comes to you, and he doesn't whisper in your ear. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't honor the glory here. Like, it's really true. Well, I don't see it. It's really true. Okay, I'll believe it, but I don't see it. That doesn't honor him. Whispering's not a very honorable thing. But if he opens your eyes while you're reading one morning, you love me like that? your only son and a hundred other reasons to see glory here, you'll die for that or live for it. Let's pray. Father, as Kay takes these women into your word and 
Luke 12, I think, tomorrow, I pray this room would be radiant with love for the glory of God shining forth in the Word. Authenticate for these women, those who have had doubts, those who've had struggles, those who've been so beat up by life that they wonder whether so many of the things in the Bible can really be so. I pray that this weekend would be a revelatory weekend in the sense that you, God, Holy Spirit, come with such eye-opening, spiritual, illumining power that they will see for themselves. And they will no longer say, somebody told me it was, like mama told me it was. But they will say, I've seen him. There's no way he has the words of life. I pray you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.